Hello everyone and welcome to Lokya Kahenge. Today we have uh, Pri with us to start us off in the new year 2021. Happy new year to Yay! you guys. Yay! And to the fantastic two ladies present with me today, Minahil. Hi guys. And Pri, hi. Hi. <laughs> Glad to be on here. <laughs> thank you and thanks so much. We were, um, uh, and I should probably mention here that, you know, we meant to actually do an episode with you obviously last year. But we thought it would be fantastic to start start off with you in the in the new year with some you know girl power to mm-hmm. say the least, um, <laughs> and and you know because I feel like this is our this is our energy carrying through to the new year. Yes. So we're so excited to have you and to get to know you a little bit better, and then talk about all things that is like you know the the fantastic stuff you do for work, obviously, but then the work that you do through uh, second gen Daisy. Um, and of course, you know, just get to know like a fantastic uh, fellow girl that you are. So, Yay. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, so Pri, what's happening nowadays? Yeah, so um, just to give like a little bit brief background as to who I am and what I do. Um, yeah, so I go by Pri um, on Instagram and my blog, secondgendaisy.com. And um, I basically started this, uh, I guess, like six months ago now, <laughs> like mm-hmm. um, putting out my post live and everything, um, kind of giving um, little snippets as to my thoughts and my memories and my uh, opinions uh, growing up as a second gen Daisy girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, my parents actually came from uh, South India in Chennai. And uh, they moved to the U.S. and um, my sister and I were born in the U.S. and raised in the U.S. Um, I was actually born in Oklahoma Mm. and then we moved to the U.K. for a while, moved back to Oklahoma, moved to California. And I grew up in California pretty much from elementary school all the way through when I finished my Ph.D. So I consider myself a Cali girl. Yes. (laughs) Um, Even though while I was living there, I wanted to be anywhere but California. (laughs) Um, but now I am working as a postdoctoral scientist in uh, Milan, Italy. Um, and so uh, pretty much throughout this type of journey, I've kind of gone through a lot of personal growth and then also um, found different passions through running, um, through mm-hmm. writing, um, through travel. Um, and I've talked a lot about some of my personal struggles growing up as far as being a second gen um, on my blog and on Instagram. Um, but a lot of things I grew up with um, uh, were particularly related to mental health. Yeah. And so that's something I try to talk a lot more about on my blog and um, through my Instagram, Instagram captions. Um, because when I was in uh, my late teens uh, going into college, um, that was when I was first kind of uh, self-diagnosed with uh, depression and an eating disorder um, and then even I think throughout the years or the earlier years of that diagnosis it was confirmed by doctors yeah. um, but the thing about that particular mental illness is that um, it's a struggle to kind of accept that and want to recover mm-hmm. um, so my recovery process didn't really happen until about six years later when I was in my Um, mid-20s and Mm -hmm. um, in the beginning of my PhD. Um, And then the other thing that I also had to kind of deal with growing up was having um, a close family member, my mother, um, also have to kind of deal with her own mental illness and how that impacted my family. 
Um, But these are all kind of um, experiences that I feel a lot of South Asian households um, have experienced in some kind of way. And so that's why I feel like it's important for me to at least share my story and share my experience um, through the platforms that I've chosen um, so that at least I can kind of be a voice and say that it's, this is not, this doesn't have to be a secret. Um, this is something that unfortunately is happening, but you're not alone kind of thing. Um, so that's just kind of an overall gist of what I do and what I'm trying to do with Second Gen Daisy. And yeah, I mean, from there. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And not trying, you're doing it. Uh, you know, before we <laughs> before we even hit record today, I feel like, you know, I was just talking, we were just saying that what you write, every single mm. word resonates, maybe right. like, you know, transitions in your life, or if you're talking about a certain day that you yeah. have. Yeah, and even the, um, the one that really, I really liked one was the, how you were, uh, you were learning uh, the language over there and yeah. the experience with your tutor. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, that was. Yes. I thought that was pretty badass too. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I really liked that one definitely. And then yeah. especially from your runs, I really enjoyed those a lot. Like your daily runs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, those are you. awesome. <laughs> yeah. So true. And speaking about the tutor part, the way that you handled that situation, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> So just for like, you know, some background, pre care to t- take us through that and then tell us a little bit about like, you know, as this super awesome hybrid culture that I feel like at this point, right? Because <laughs> clearly you've, you know, you li- you've lived in different countries and you've learned different languages. And of course, your originations are completely different from where you are right now, where you're working. Um, so talk to us about like, you know, did you always find yourself having like that voice in you or if you did, you know, develop it over time, how did you find yourself in that position where you put that tutor in their place? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so I guess as far as like uh, my language journey or figuring out my voice has to I guess stand up for myself. <laughs> the, I yeah, exactly. I want to say both definitely, and do tell us a little bit about like more what happened. And this is you know sort yeah. of like the D, but like the tea, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. So, um, I mean, this is also another. As far as language is concerned, I think this is also something that a lot of second gen struggle with, which is um, being receptively bilingual. Hmm. And that I came across that term, I think, I think when I was actually Googling, like, why do I understand the language, but not being able to speak it? And I think someone I came across it from a blog post or something. Um, But that term kind of means that um, a lot of children of immigrant parents um, grow up with the language in the household, and they grew up listening to it listening to it and hearing it Hmm. Um, but for example if you're living in a country like the uh, US or Canada or UK the predominant language is English as far Hmm. as um, in the community and in school Um, so then the parents just kind of uh, kind of push the children to learn English um, and then as you grow older you kind of lose your ability to speak um, the mother tongue back to Hmm. uh, family or parents relatives and things like that um, so for me, um, growing up, I, uh, my family's language is Thummer. Hmm. And um, even to this day, I don't have issues understanding the language, um, but it's always been an issue for me to speak it. And um, even looking at the letters, like 
I remember um, the trips that we used to go on to um, visit extended family. Um, I would be able to like read letters off of billboards and kind of piece together words here and there. But um, I think one part of it was I was too shy and nervous about making mistakes that Mm. I kind of prevented myself from being able to practice and speak with my family. Mm. And then the other thing was also the frustration, just feeling exhausted and feeling like I would just never get it as far as speaking it. Mm. And so even to this day, this is something that I still struggle with as far as being fluent in any other language but English. Um, But it is something that like eventually in my life, I kind of want to strive towards that and um, have that ability to be able to speak it. Um, But that was something that, um, you know, when I was in middle school and my teens, that was something that I felt very shameful of because I felt like, oh, like how can I call myself um, an Indian, or how can I call myself a thumber if I can't even speak my family's language, right. um, regardless of how much I understood it. Hmm. And um, and then as far as like other languages, um, when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to take, I think, German. And so I took that for four years. And um, it was it was a good experience because like I felt like, okay, I'm picking this very interesting language. Not a lot of high schools have this as an option. Hmm. And Um, the teacher I had was very um, enthusiastic about teaching it. And so I thought that perhaps I could go somewhere with it. Um, And so when I entered my first year of undergrad, um, I decided to take a German class. And I think after the first assignment, I got a C and that literally like, like that scared me so Mm -hmm. much. And I was like, I got to drop this class. Like I cannot, (laughs) if this is what's going to happen, like I cannot keep up. I hear you. Um, Yeah. So that was the end of German. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so I think pretty much from that point on, I kind of just kind of stuck towards like my career as a scientist and like kind of sticking to my science classes and not really thinking about extracurriculars or as far as, um, language learning is concerned. Right. Um, but once I got to my PhD, um, I, I mean, as far as Italy, I never really thought I would actually come to Italy until very recently in my life. Hmm. Um, It was actually towards, um, I would say, the middle of my PhD, where I had the opportunity to go to a conference in Spain. Mm -hmm. And um, after that experience, I came back from that few days in Spain, like wanting more. Hmm. And of course, this is all pre-COVID when we were all able to just travel freely and experience different things. Um, but my experience of that, my particular experience with Spain at that time made me feel like I have to go abroad for my next career step. Got it. I cannot be stuck in California. Mm. I cannot be stuck in the U.S. I want to see more and have it and, and basically create a new chapter in my life that I want to create. Right. Um, and so for a while I was looking at um, Spanish positions and I was looking into learning Spanish um but then it came to be that the opportunities were more um, prevalent in italy right. so mm-hmm. i ended up kind of choosing that route because i also kind of wanted to um go somewhere in southern europe versus northern europe right. just for that experience um and so i think that kind of my journey kind of drifted towards that way because of what was available mm-hmm. and what i was leaning towards um and so I had, I think based on the fellowship I had applied for and um, the timeline of that, I was supposed to come to Italy, I think back in February, 
Um, but then of course COVID hit and yeah. I ended up coming here in June. Hmm. And um, it was interesting because during that time, um, I think right before, I guess, February, I was super excited. I was super enthusiastic about this next chapter in my life. Hmm. And I was learning Italian. I was taking beginner courses um, and I was just ready to go. Right. Um, but I think, and I think this is something that a lot of people have experienced during this COVID period, but um, I think those several months hmm. um, in the spring being stuck at home and being kind of um, lo- at a loss of what where things are going with this world and what we're going to do, um, I think my enthusiasm like took a real um, hard hit. Right. Um, so when I finally got the green light to go, um, my enthusiasm was just not at the same level that it was or it should have been. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to give a, give up that opportunity, even though things were not going to be the same yeah. as, as I um, expected. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, I, of course, I went through with it and I'm, I've been here for six months. Yeah. Um, but as far as like learning the language and the experience, um, it's definitely not easy. It's yeah. been very difficult. Um, and I think because... Um, of what has been going on and the um, kind of like the atmosphere here and also kind of leading up to it. Um, it's been more of like something that I kind of have to push myself to um, want to keep learning and practicing yeah. versus something that I'm excited to open up the book and just learn on my own. Right. Um, and I think that's just me like being honest about it. Like, of course, like it's, it's, it's nice to hear someone who goes to a new country and just, you know, like, um, swallows up everything of the culture, the language, the people, everything, um, with so much joy and passion and, and is able to talk about that. Um, but I think the reality is with, um, especially with what the, what the pandemic has mm-hmm. brought, um, it's just not the same. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course there's good things about this experience. Yeah. Um, but I think so far it's going to, it's going to be, a, it's going to take some time, um, uh, for things to get back to a place where, um, people are more welcoming and there's more opportunities to practice and meet people and put that language to use. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, well, thank you so yeah. much. We, we love hearing that. I think that sums up pretty much like your, your whole experience, I guess, like of, <laughs> of like what ended up happening and stuff, especially with the part of like people being more welcoming. I think like the world has turned upside down. Not that it was very friendly to begin with, the world i'm just like saying it really wasn't Mm -hmm. but now it's like more closed off more like people are just very short-tempered and out of patience and they're just not open to anything anymore it's really sad it's really sad to see that and it was a drastic change i feel like i think so too and honestly the we've been talking about like you know um unfortunately and we never talk about politics on this podcast particularly (laughs) fondly but you know we can't help but notice the feelings and the atmosphere right like yeah uh, pre-2016 post-2016 and especially oh my god this past election season just the most recent one has been horrific so yeah, um, yeah. you know Definitely. we've never ever felt like the sort of like the the, the even the the air around us was a yeah. was very hostile. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, as if like politics wasn't enough, I feel like COVID just really. I feel like this is one thing that affected everything, everybody. everything and everybody. Yeah, so it wasn't fun. So like now people are just super mean, 
I mean, like, New York is one really mean place to begin with, and now people are just double mean, so it's it's really sad. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and I feel like, uh, honestly speaking, the it's, it's easier. I feel like now it's become almost, like, socially necessary to be a little bit more, like, standoffish and like offhanded mm-hmm. and stuff yeah. so yeah it you know it makes sense um but how long are you there for now yeah I, well so i've been here for about six months and um as far as as far as uh the position that i'm in and how things are going it's uh contractually for three years mm, so nice. i'm about mm, a sixth of the way yeah. <laughs> in of that contract Awesome. Um, but of course, um, I don't like to put timelines or deadlines yeah. on things. So yeah. um, I'm trying to give everything a chance and see where things go. And if you know, three years from now I'm speaking fluent Italian, then yeah. maybe I'll stay longer. I don't Ooh. know. We'll yeah. just have to see. But um, yeah, so 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 far it's it's been six months, and I can't believe it's been six months. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. That is very fast. So what's like what's uh, when you like first went there and you got there? So I, f- what was like one thing that or the many things that were kind of like a cultural shock to you, or did you just like kind of ease into it? Yeah, so it was interesting because so I live in Milan, which is it has this reputation of being like this very fashionable, mm. like very cosmopolitan place. Mm. Um, and uh, before going to Milan, I did my PhD in Los Angeles, so I was used mm. to that kind of city life. And um, I was actually not re- I, towards the end of my PhD, I was not really fond of it anymore. I was mm. like, I take me to the countryside, like I <laughs> don't like city life anymore. Um, but um, I mean, well, at least with Milan, I had this idea of like, oh, European city life that might be different. That right. I might be more refined. Um, so I go there, and I think the culture, the first kind of inkling of culture shock was arriving at the airport and um, um, meeting someone who was helping me um, move to a place where I can do quarantine because I, had to, I did mm. have to quarantine mm. for two weeks. Um, but the place I was staying at was the opposite of what I was thinking what Milan would look like. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's just like any other city um, as mm. far as um, it, it has its dirty areas. It's yeah. not uh, perfect. Um, it's uh so the place that i was staying in it was kind of in the outskirts of the city and it was a suburb that or a neighborhood um that was kind of slightly run down a little bit um so it wasn't exactly like the first best impression of uh where i was going to be living for Mm -hmm. or for the next couple months and years um but uh i think that was like the initial kind of experience of like okay like if it's a city it's going to be a city It, it doesn't matter where in the world it is it's city life is just the same all over pretty much right Um, yeah so true and uh, what i definitely want to also hear is that you know um i myself i mean thankfully and we always acknowledge this that we you know don't have uh parents or i guess like other people keeping tabs on like where we are and stuff like that like we have you know free reign to explore and not put things you know in boxes and follow a pattern so I definitely want to like ask you though how does it feel to be the you know the lone traveler and all of this and making that shift from going from you know being close to your family and being Mm. close to people or a town that you've been in for a long time and your other life right (laughs) um (laughs) and then and then moving completely to a different you know by uh, yourself by yourself 
Yeah, I mean, actually, I think looking back, it, it kind of seems like it was very all very gradual because hmm. um, when, yes, like when I was in, living in California, I lived for all through elementary school pretty much until I started my PhD. I was living in the same town with my parents and sister. Right. Um, and so even for undergrad, um, I went to a college that was about 30 minutes away by car. Right. So I commuted after the first year. First year, I stayed in the dorms and then I came home on the weekends. Um, but then after that, I was pretty much at home for like a lot, most of my life, my early life. Right. Um, and so I was super excited once I got into my PhD program to move to LA and like live on my own for the first time. That was, I think that initial, uh, feeling of, um, I guess, uh, wanting to move out and have that adventure, um, did not really match what I was feeling when I moved to Milan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's because, um, I think it's because with the first move to Los Angeles, that was like just the first time I was ever going to have an experience um, of living on my own. Right. Um, and so um, I think that first year in Los Angeles, I really took advantage of what was around me. Um, I didn't have a car. And so I love to tell people, um, you do not need a car to live in Los Angeles. Like if you live in the dead center of the city, yeah. you can take the metro, you can take the buses, mm. like you're not going to die. <laughs> like, you're actually going to be able to save a lot more time in your day. Right. Um, but yeah, I used all of, like, what, all of what I could, all of what was provided to me as um, resources as a graduate student, um, and as much as you can kind of survive with the money that you get as a graduate student, right. um, to kind of go around and like explore um, LA on my own. And um, I, I think that like initial excitement to go around and explore the city um, kind of stuck with me, I guess, until towards the end of my PhD when I started to kind of get um, uh, tired and bored of everything going on around me. And I was really itching for that change. And I think that change um, was that change to go move abroad and work abroad and live abroad. And that's how Milan um, kind of fit in that picture, along with what I said earlier about um, my experience with Spain and um, all of that. Um, and so, uh, so I think as far as the shock of like being away from family and things like that, um, I think I, I say it's gradual because, um, I feel like my distance away from them kind of, uh, it, it grew like longer as, as I got older. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that I was able to kind of get used to in pieces. Yeah. Um, so for example, like in my first year of my PhD, um, my dad uh, was working for a company and um, he would have frequent business trips to um, Southern California. Right. So there would be like instances, like maybe once a month, we'd still be able to see each other. So um, I didn't really feel too homesick. I still felt like I had my freedom while still being able to have, uh, be physically in touch with family. Yeah. Um, and then towards the middle of my PhD, my family actually moved back to Oklahoma. <laughs> Um, and so, (laughs) and so then, um, every month kind of became like every six months. So Mm. I would see them, uh, like maybe around Christmas time and then maybe once in the summer. Um, and so I think now me being in Milan, um, uh, it was actually interesting because, um, I spent, uh, the first kind of COVID lockdown period with them. So Mm. I was with them for about three months before coming to Italy. So it was kind of like a nice break um, as far as like lining up with my transition in life. So kind of closing one chapter of my life and then starting the next and kind of bridging this 
time with family like in between so that's kind of helped um but I think going forward we'll have to see like how homesick I'll get because Mm -hmm. I have been feeling homesick Mm -hmm. um since coming here Mm -hmm. um but I think that coupled with COVID is is probably something that's a lot of people have been feeling as far as like being able to um see loved ones or relatives and things like that so true and honestly it's just unfortunately the stories that we hear and depression climbing and anxiety climbing and loneliness climbing yeah. at an all-time high which is so unfortunate so yeah. but i mean but that's that's a yeah. really exciting transition and i feel like you know it's it, it takes um it takes you know certain guts obviously yeah. it takes <laughs> being inspired uh by you know like, like you said i had like you know that itch oh my god like i want to do something After else yeah. or start new chapters so i com- completely can relate and also understand and yeah. i'm pretty sure i'll be asking you follow-up questions yeah <laughs> on my own about definitely. that um yeah. <laughs> that sounds so cool i love that um so something about like uh, you know, you said before, I don't like putting timelines on things or deadlines on things. Mm-hmm. I think I think that that's fantastic. And honestly speaking, being completely vulnerable here, like I've been putting deadlines and timelines mm-hmm. on things for as long as I can remember. And however, you know, that expectations or, you know, even feeling guilty to myself about these things that I could not meet technically, uh, you know, often send me down a spiral of anxiety thinking about all yeah. these uh, you know goals that we set up for ourselves and stuff so but so but one thing that like I was completely inspired by since I you know have first talked to you and etc is that of course you've been able to um, you know work through and achieve uh, things you know on timelines that are you know more I, I would I feel like is more accelerated than most people that yeah. I've met yeah um so talk to us a little bit about that like how do you uh, you know, did you always know that you were going to go down this path of like research? Um, and, you know, how did you, I guess, like find your way through where mm-hmm. you are right now? I would love to hear your sort of yeah. thinking process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say like, I think from the very beginning, my starting point is pretty much like every other Daisy kid where your mom or dad is telling you, um, you need to be a doctor. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. I think it was like, when I was like five, my mom was like, oh, you should be a doctor, but not like in a forceful way. But yeah. I think she was like, yeah, you should be a doctor. And I was like, okay, sure. I like, I like the body. I like yeah. knowing yeah. about the body or, as much as a five-year-old would know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think, yeah, pretty much all the way through high school, I was thinking I would be on that med medical MD path. And, um, I was very serious about school and um, uh, my parents, like after a certain point, really did not need to tell me what to do. I was just like, I am taking all these classes, I'm doing all these extracurricular activities, these are the colleges I wanna go to. Hmm. Um, And unfortunately it got to the point where um, it's really hard to say like if all of that stress and pressure is what triggered the start of my um, depression eating disorder or if it was already kind of coming on its own. Um, but I think all of that kind of clashed towards the end of my senior year and I was starting to feel very anxious about, um, the college I ended up going to and kind of trying to see if I could really keep this perfectionist, um, characteristic of myself, um, um, onwards in college and in undergrad, um, because of all the personal struggles I was going through, it was very tough. Um, I really didn't have a social life, um, not because, um, 
of all the stuff that I was doing. I was, I was very busy, um, but I was also um, kind of isolating myself because of the eating disorder and the depression. Mm. Um, so those years weren't the best or the most fun. Mm. Um, and also because of, I was trying to graduate um, a year early um, to save money, but also because I uh, wanted to kind of, yeah, save money and also kind of do that for my parents in the sense that I didn't want because they were they were helping me finance um, yeah. my uh, tuition, so I didn't really. If I could save an extra year, I wanted to try and do that. Um, so that kind of yeah. pushed me towards that direction. Um, but I would say towards the end of my undergrad, um, that's when I kind of shifted from wanting to do an MD to doing an MD PhD, um, which kind of combines. Um, the research aspect of it with also the MD training. Hmm. Um, but around that time, I learned about how difficult it, it how competitive, um, probably even more competitive than an MD program. Wow. Um, and um, I think I was really struggling with balancing um, my classes, um, the research hours, because um, I had taken up a, a research, undergrad research position with a lab um, that was at a hospital nearby mm-hmm. um, and my boss at the time pretty much wanted to treat me like a graduate student and was saying you need to be here more you need to work these many hours mm-hmm. and I had to remind her many many times that I'm an undergraduate student I I'm here for the experience you're not paying me yeah. so um, I really can't commit that much um, and but that was like my first um, experience with learning the protocols and the techniques and the terminology that researchers use. Um, and I really liked the idea of kind of being at the forefront of discoveries. Um, and um, not to say that what MDs do is um, inferior to what scientists do. I mean, I oftentimes think scientists aren't given enough credit for what they do. Right. Um, but I think uh, those are just different aspects of um, science and one group is dis- uh, making the discoveries and figuring out the um, uh, putting theory into practice, hmm. while the other group is taking those discoveries and translating it into the clinic and using that to directly help people. Right. And so my hope, what at the time when I was, I guess, towards the end of my undergrad, was to get into an MD PhD program so that I could at least. Um, be able to practice as a doctor, but also have that research training. Um, but the thing that really killed me was the MCAT. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that, and it's, it's, I think people sometimes feel ashamed when they have to, or if, if the idea of test scores come up or um, grades come up, people kind of shy away from trying or being vulnerable with that. Yeah. Uh, but I will gladly say like I bombed the MCAT. <laughs> I mean, I at the time I was very upset about it and I was in shock and I mm. really had no idea what I was gonna do because I had felt like I had spent an entire summer mm. cramming and studying for it. Um, but it was also a wake up call for me because I was able to kind of figure out, figure out what I really wanted to do yeah. um, as far as if I wanted to devote more time to studying for this specific test um, versus spending more time in research labs and getting more of that um, uh, physical experience with working um, and practical experience. Um, And it was also during that time that I bombed the MCAT where I was actually doing really well in a um, a biochemistry course that was focused on um, nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so I really was really... uh, 
fascinated by that and really wanted to do something like that for my PhD. And so I, I would say that class, the MCAT experience, and then also kind of um, the research experience that I accumulated to that point um, kind of pushed me towards focusing towards um, getting a PhD. Um, and um, I would say looking back, because I was also still struggling with my eating disorder, nutrition still had a very strong kind of um, uh, component in my life, um, only because um, that was also pretty much my life. I was, I, I mean, I was obsessed with food and obsessed mm-hmm. with calories and obsessed with anything involving food, even if it was, even if I could kind of disguise it around this idea of studying it scientifically. Yeah. Um, but in a way, looking back, I feel like that was kind of my way out eventually. Hmm. Um, because, um, even though I kind of went into my PhD still struggling with an eating disorder and still struggling, um, with managing that and still trying to keep up with, um, the rigorous life of a PhD student, um, I eventually found my way out and eventually was able to say, you know, I, I can, I can get out of this. And, um, and then as I kind of finished my PhD, I was able to kind of see that I had passions for different aspects of science. So I was able to see I was uh, interested in cancer, immunology research, um, and neurology. So it didn't really have to be um, associated with nutrition anymore. It could be a, it could just be a standalone topic, and it would be something that I'd be interested in. Yeah. And um, and so I'm, I'm kind of thankful that I'm not so obsessed with the idea. I mean, nutrition is great. And what I was able to do in the lab that I did was um, really fun and really interesting. Hmm. Um, but I went in thinking that nutrition would be a part of my life for the rest of my life. And I came out um, knowing that, like, it doesn't have to be. I have the skills that I need to, that I could use to be successful in any type of research um field whether it's um, in academia or industry um yeah yeah, so that's where i am right now um and that's how i got to this position yeah um but uh yeah it it, it didn't start off uh with me at five years old saying oh i want to be a a researcher working at the lab or anything yeah right oh my god what i love about this is that sort of like you know we talk a lot about on this podcast about certain expectations and like mm. set, um, you know, paths. And uh, of course, you know, the ever favorite, you know, um, this person did this. Yeah. So like, you know, you have to at yeah. least do this, <laughs> yeah. right? What I love about what you've just explained is like, you know, a transition, um, a, a transition from like, you know, sort of knowing what I'm going to do mm. and then dealing with some serious problems in between and you know um and still continuing to going to a, a you know a place that you are happy with yeah. and y- y- that yeah. you are you know um that you know that you're working towards something that you are generally proud of right. with yourself you know and we're so proud of you i yeah. think um oh, thank you. <laughs> it completely like absolutely we're obsessed with the idea of meeting fellow women who are you know um making a difference and representing you know people that look like us etc in all of like you know stem or steam Mm -hmm. spaces Mm -hmm. right uh i think that that is something that we uh have seriously a very less percentage of and yeah 
it can't be, you know, this can't be an understatement in any form. So when we, you know, we saw you post about like, you know, I think it was like STEM day or something. I, I, think? I think so. Yeah. Something about um, that. Although I feel yeah. like you're always posting about that anyway, too, which is it's really true. awesome. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. We are constantly talking about, you know, of course, like being in tech ourselves and, you know, sort of there's a, such a fine balance between, uh, you know, thinking about some obvious problems, the mm-hmm. very obvious problems that the tech industry already has. And thinking about like, you know, representation or the misrepresentation or underrepresentation of like, uh, you know, the people that look like us or speak like us or come from countries that, you know, we belong to um, higher up on these tables that make decisions such yeah. as who gets included in this algorithm or not, you know, right. at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and so there's like a fine balance between that and, you know, completely like things that are blatantly problems anyway, which is i.e. Facebook, i.e. Right. other things, you know. Right. Um but, you know, thank you so much for doing the work that you do, because, you know, uh, just listening to it, I mean, of course, the deeper levels of meaning behind it aside, you're already, you know, um, you've already like broken, yeah. I feel like the process down for me too, who is, you know, hopefully one day looking to get her PhD, etc. Right. Uh, yeah. For thinking that, oh my God, it, you know, it's, you never know, and there is not like a thumbtack that you can put up and say, this is when this is happening. I know, you know? I know, it's very, yeah. it's very <laughs> One thing that I'm really interested in knowing, I guess, is, like, what uh, a day looks like at work for you, like, when you go in. Um, Yeah, because I've never, I don't know any other researchers, but I've I've always been interested in, like, um, the research and the actual lab, like, what's, what goes on in the lab. True. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I guess it really depends on the lab that you're in, but I, I think being, working in... I would say four different lab environments, including the ones I did in undergrad, I can kind of draw some comparisons. And mm. a lot of the a lot of the things that kind of happen in the lab are very individual in the sense that um, you kind of, ex- I mean, teamwork is involved, but a lot of the times the researcher is very, very much feels like they're on their own as far as mm. what project they have to do and kind of um, organizing that project and um, mapping out their day. Right. Um, so not one day is the same. Right. It really depends on the experiment. But I would say, like, um, for, for myself, I tend to be more of a morning person. So I'm usually, like, one of the first people in the lab. Cool. <laughs> and I come in at, like, what, 8.39. And um, there's other people that come in around that time, too. But a lot of researchers I've come across tend to be kind of late morning people right. I've, I've come across people that start their work at day at like 3 p.m hmm. um that was the situation in my undergrad lab um but normally it really depends on the experiments that we do so for example when i was in my phd um i did a lot of work with mice and hmm. so um and my project at the time was involving um a alzheimer's disease uh, so i had to do a lot of behavioral tests and so I would basically go down, depending on the type of test I was doing, I was sometimes down there every day, including weekends. And so like every morning I go down, check on their weight, check on their food, um, put them in a maze, watch them do their thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. And then um, kind of take that data back. Um, and then depending on um, how the boss is feeling and um, the schedule, we'll usually have lab meetings. And lab meetings usually consist of maybe an hour, sometimes more. Sometimes uh, uh, bosses are known to kind of uh, prolong these meetings. So sometimes <laughs> right. we have very, very long meetings. 
Um, And again, it depends on the lab, but I've been in labs where the meeting is focused on someone presenting um, an update on their project and just giving data on that project. I've been in labs where um, the focus would be on something called a journal club, where we would pick a paper that has been published by, it could be from any lab, it doesn't have to be the lab that that I'm in or whatever. and just kind of going to that paper and analyzing it and seeing if that group's work makes sense as far as uh, what experiments they did, what uh, protocols they used. And um, it's kind of like a practice for scientists to um, read papers and um, kind of digest the material. Right. Um, and, um, and another uh, thing about, I guess, working in a research lab is it, yeah, the day is never the same. So some days you could be working long hours, like on your feet, um, going back and forth between different areas of the lab, doing an experiment at the bench, which is kind of like a desktop. Mm-hmm. We call it the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other days it's very low key in the sense that you're at your computer, at your desk, and you're just kind of analyzing data on the computer. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, a scientist, a uh, day in the life of a scientist or a researcher is very buried right um but uh yeah i mean uh, and then i think it also depends on if you are like a graduate student Mm -hmm. or if you're a postdoc um so for example if you're a graduate student and you're starting just starting out you may be taking a lot more classes so you're probably still like feeling like an undergraduate student where you're in the classroom for most of the time but then you are um in the lab for a little bit just to start kind of figuring out what kind of project you want to do or learning different protocols from uh, more experienced lab members in that lab. If you are kind of like a late stage grad student, you're like pretty much like half and half, maybe at the computer, like finishing up writing your paper, um, uh, finishing up experiments. Um, hopefully, um, I was lucky enough when I was in, uh, in my PhD um, to be doing my PhD at a university that had a lot of undergraduates that wanted to get research experience. Mm. So I think at one point I had like 20 students working for me. Ooh, nice. <laughs> and, yeah. And so it was really, really helpful to have them around. And I also really enjoyed um, training them and helping them mm. and um, kind of being their mentor. Yeah. Um, I think that was like one of the one of the skills that I was able to develop that I really appreciated mm. to have that experience doing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you're like a late stage grad student and you're lucky enough to have help, that, yeah. that really does help in the long run as far as processing data and putting things together. And then as a postdoc, um, I think you start to get more independence as far as um, what you want to get out of it. Hmm. And um, so the postdoc that I'm doing right now, I'm really lucky in the sense that the fellowship, I, since I'm coming under a fellowship, I'm not really under the funding of what my boss has earned or what my boss has gotten from her own grant. Hmm. I'm kind of bringing in my own funding. So I feel like I have a lot more freedom as far as um, my work hours and what I get to do. Um, but of course, like I, the idea with this fellowship is to get training in this particular field that I'm in and the lab that I'm in. Um, and then there's other additional um, kind of funds to go to conferences. Um, and, in, hmm. and, and I guess, of course, in this time, it'd probably be like a virtual kind of yeah. meeting or symposia. Um, and then funds to kind of contribute to the dissemination of research, which is basically writing a paper or a review on papers that are already have already been published in the field. Um, uh, so those are like the, the different kind of tasks people in the lab do. 
Yeah. And I guess like after, um, and the thing about a postdoc is that um, in, in the early, like decades ago, it used to be simple enough where you would do your PhD and then you could go apply for professor professorship positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now it's gotten so, the PhD um, market has gotten so saturated that um, a lot of people are choosing maybe to do a postdoc for a short period of time and then switching to industry mm-hmm. or um, doing multiple postdocs and then hoping to eventually land an assistant uh, professorship or a professorship, an entry level professorship position um, and then staying in academia. Cool. Um, so um, when I was towards the end of my PhD, I was still trying to figure out, like, I, I did know I wanted to do a postdoc because I wanted to get more experience um, besides what I've gotten during my PhD. Um, but I am still not really sure if I want to stay in academia um, mm-hmm. or how long I want to stay in academia for. Um, because, again, it really, um, at least as far as the state of academia as it is, mm-hmm. um, it's it's getting very very difficult to publish um, mm. in the really top journals. You mm. really have to stand out with like a very novel discovery. So, whoever identified COVID and uh, anything, <laughs> or actually mm. anything to do with COVID nowadays, is going to get published right. because that's like the hot topic. Yeah. Uh, but so even if you're doing like research on something that has been taking like many many years and to you is very relevant and to you is so interesting. Um, if a top journal doesn't take it, it's going to be very hard um, mm. to find a way to publish it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a very unfortunate thing that has kind of uh, resulted from this kind of where the field has gone. Yeah. Um, because um, it's it makes it makes people wanting to stay in academia. It makes people um, feel more encouraged to get out of academia versus stay because um, it just it proves to be more difficult unless you are a shining star in the in academia and and uh, putting out papers on novel things that people find interesting and worth funding. Yeah. Um, and if you're not having success with that, and a lot of that is luck. <laughs> right. I mean, you have to be really lucky to find something um, uh, like a novel break breakthrough type of thing. Right. Um, so I think a lot of people find it safer and um, like more financially stable to switch to industry after after a little bit of after a couple of years as a postdoc um, and I think I'm at the position right now where um, I'm trying to learn as much as I can um, in the position that I'm in because it is complete opposite of what I did in my PhD um, but I think I really have to kind of survey the landscape and see how things are going and really evaluate and see if it's going to be worth staying in academia for mm. um any longer yeah that makes sense yeah i love how like this actually episode is actually shaping up to be a resource a great resource yeah. for anybody <laughs> who's even thinking of pursuing such a path you know um and i can already think of like one or two people in my network that can right. benefit from this but thank you so much for going into that detail, detail. Yeah. Um, yeah and it sounds like it's it's super competitive and super yeah. <laughs> You know, it seems a lot of pressure. So what are you doing to not overwhelm yourself with anxiety? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Um, because, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it all seems really exciting and really, it seems like very, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, but there are days where I do find myself kind of going through that whole imposter syndrome thing mm. where I'm like, oh, do, do I really am I really that smart to know all this stuff or am I just kind of fooling myself into thinking I know this, but I really don't. Um, and I think to kind of cope with that, um, for me, 
um, compared to what I was doing in my PhD. So in my PhD, I kind of just kind of gave my life to my PhD in the sense that like, I knew I, what I signed up for and I knew that it was going to take some time and I wanted to get the, I wanted to get my degree and I wanted to get my paper. So if it meant giving up weekends, I gave up weekends. And at the time I was okay with it because I was able to kind of put, kind of um, schedule my life around what I had to do in the lab. So even though I may have had to go in on weekends, I would still kind of uh, schedule that to go to be take place in the morning and then in that have the rest of the day to myself kind of thing. Right. Um, but now that I'm in my postdoc, I'm realizing that I cannot keep working 24 seven. And I think one of the things that I still feel frustrated by is kind of like the silent peer pressure of, um, uh, constantly having this, uh, need to work. Right. Um, because I have colleagues that work at different, um, times and a lot of them you know they start their day later and they work till late hours and of course I said earlier I'm a morning person and I like to finish my day earlier and mm-hmm. go home and rest up and so you know like I'll be packing up at five or six and just like a standard time and mm-hmm. I'll still see people around me just like you know, working buzzing oh, right. around and working and and you, and you feel that pressure because especially if you have a boss that works late and in any lab that you feel that pressure of, oh no, like, do they think I'm leaving early? And do they know that I came in early? Like, right. so there's always that internal, like, oh no, like, what do they think of me? Um, but I think I'm trying to use this opportunity to, um, of course, put my best work out there, but also, you know, tell myself like, okay, I put in this many hours today. I did mm-hmm. what I could and there's no more I can do of benefit. So I need to go home now and rest up. Like, there's no benefit in me sitting at my computer till eight o'clock, even though other people are here, if I'm dead tired, like if I mm. can't think anymore. Right. Um, so I've been trying to really prioritize self-care in this process because, um, yeah, the work is never going to stop. The work is always going to be there. Um, experiments are always going to be needing to get done. Um, uh, but I, I've tried to make it a priority to give myself time um uh, in the evenings to rest up and then also on the weekends. So mm-hmm. I try not to work on the weekends. Um, sometimes I may have to, if I have to give like a presentation, I have to clean up some PowerPoint slides. Yeah. Um, but I've been really trying to prioritize mm-hmm. my mental health and, um, self-care and things like that. Um, especially during this, um, position that I've gotten and, um, versus when I was doing my PhD. Yeah. For sure. And I would love to know when you even find the time to then give to second gen Daisy and then (laughs) the connections that you make there. And And like to be able to like uh, write when you want to and not force it, you know? Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Because like when I first started second gen Daisy, like I think like with I think COVID kind of helped because I did have Hmm. some extra time like during that lockdown period where I was able to kind of kind of um, uh, put together a lot of blog posts to schedule for later and kind of focus them on topics that I wanted to get to eventually and then I was lucky enough to be able to kind of pick and choose when I did have that collection and be like okay I really feel like talking about this topic oh okay I wrote about it already I'm ready to go (laughs) post it but now I'm at that point where I kind of went through all of that prepackaged like material that Mm. I made for myself and now I'm and now I'm just kind of going with the flow where okay like I'll I'll write things when I feel like that emotion or that mood or that need to write about like the memory that pops up yeah um but I normally wouldn't post it unless I'm 
I'm again, like feeling like I want to share it at that time. Um, So right now I'm at a period where it's like, okay, I need to start kind of thinking about more things to share and post. Um, But again, I try to, I try to um, keep it. I try to kind of write about things that I'm feeling at the moment and then um, share again when I feel it, feel like sharing it. Yeah. Which is hard. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. Because I feel like a challenge that we sometimes face is, you know, overworking and burnout is so, so real that I almost feel like my brain gives up on me and I don't want to Mm -hmm. even look at an email or look at a text or, you know, look at words. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that's so how do you uh, kind of like, you know, it almost because the the books that I read or like, you know, even the therapy that I receive from my therapist and stuff like that all sort of like, you know, talks about this notion of training your brain because it is a muscle to be able to, you know, relax or work and stuff like that. But lately, I feel like, especially with COVID and not going out as much, and I'm not saying that, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a party gal who, you know, (laughs) went out every weekend, but, uh, you know, just like generally even go out more than we used to um, or even commuting to work and stuff like that. Uh, I feel like it's been a li- literally very hard for my brain to be able to focus. So what do you do in times when you feel like, oh, my God, I know I have to do this. However, yeah. I have no motivation mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, um, I definitely felt that with um, pr- coming up with content for Second Gen Daisy mm-hmm. and then also at work. Right. Um, and when it comes to work, it's it can be very hard because um, sometimes there's something that you have to get done like ex- like right away. Mm, yeah. And so what I try to do is um, on my days that I really don't have much going on, even if I'm feeling really bored and like I don't want to be there. Um, for me, I've always kind of found my focus with planning. Yeah. So if I am able to plan the next week in full and schedule all the things I need to schedule, I feel really at ease. Hmm. And I've had days where I would go into work really anxious because I don't know what I'm going to be doing for the next week. I, yeah. I feel mm-hmm. anxious because I need to talk to my boss and give her an update and get her um, opinion about what I should be doing for the following week. Um, but I think once that hurdle is kind of um, gotten over and I'm able to sit down on my computer and sit at my calendar and just be like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this and this and this on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and this on Tuesday. And I see that I feel so much better. Mm -hmm. I feel so much more calmer. I feel like I've accomplished, even if it's just planning out the following days, I feel like I've accomplished so much as far as um, what I'm going to be doing and I feel more focused. Um, So that's what I do with work. And then I feel like like, with Second Gen Daisy and my more creative projects, um, I think the burnout, I I try, that's why I, I, when I feel like I'm in the mood to write, I try to just get it out. And even Mm. if I'm like writing something like a caption, I like, if I'm on the train and I'm like thinking about something, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to write down these words. They're not going to make sense probably, but I'm just going to put it out here just so that I can have something to work with. Right. And um, I usually find that like, um, since I'm on my phone, like when I'm commuting on the train and things like that or on the bus, um, it's something that like, I like to also do like, like editing is also another kind of um, task that helps me feel like I'm focused on something. And so um, I think that um, doing that when I'm like doing something that's also kind of, it part of my day, but I'm not really at work. Yeah. Um, it kind of helps to kind of be efficient with my time in that sense. 
Um, but I definitely feel like it's really difficult for me to do anything, for example, after a work day. So mm-hmm. um, for me, like, like since I am a morning person, my, my best hours are in the very beginning of the day. Right. Um, but towards the night, like I can't do anything like with <laughs> my blog or Instagram or work related. So once I'm at home and having dinner, like I, my brain is shut off. Like I know I won't be able to do anything. Right. Um, so I think just being also aware of like your body and your like optimal, um, hours of the day, I think would also help as far as like trying to make use of the time that your brain is like awake. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. That's such a, that's such a good observation. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and you won't believe it, but we're literally at the top of the hour and we haven't even touched things that like we <laughs> thought we would talk about it, like in a more girly fashion, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> but that being said, like, you know, it is a new year. And personally, if I'm being completely honest, this is just my view and I would love to get your both uh, view. I am at an end for I just can't hear the term resolutions anymore and I don't like that word and I feel like it is so abstract and meaningless at this point yeah Yeah. so and I'm and I'm thinking of it like almost as a for me personally you know I've just decided to think of this new year's in terms of like energy and honestly Mm uh I guess like vibe and energy is what I'm thinking and not even looking at, you know, goals in any way or, you know, even resolutions in any way, but more like, let me give out positive energy to things that I know are going to bring me positive energy back and people, of course. Mm -hmm. How are you guys, you know, looking at this upcoming year in terms of definitely not resolutions, but like, you know, just like (laughs) thinking even. Um, Yeah, thinking. So you go first. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly in the sense that uh, I've given up on resolutions. Yeah. Like, I told myself, like, I am not making any this year. No no point, nothing. Yeah. And especially if your heart isn't in it, like, there's no point in forcing yourself to have these goals yeah. or there's, if there's no motivation behind it. Um, but I do like the energy, having that energy idea or having the idea of kind of being aware of your energy and then giving positive energy to the things that you know will help you. Um, so yeah, I think towards 2021, I think I'm looking at it as like a year where I, yeah, I really want to find ways to kind of, um, prop myself up in a, in a positive energy sense, like Mm. physical energy, emotional energy, um, uh, mental energy, (laughs) Um, because I feel like this year has been so draining and all of those things. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I'm pretty much going to go into this year, like with a focus on continued continued focus on uh, self-care yeah. and mental health and as far as prioritizing that um and of course like I think with 2020 and how things were like I mentioned kind of mentioned how like my motivation with language learning really dropped as far as like because of the pandemic and everything um but I'm really hoping that hopefully things get better and the atmosphere gets better and that motivation will come back yeah um but I feel like if I can at least have a happy, healthy body in the meantime, hmm. then at least I'll have the foundation to allow um, that motivation to come back when the time comes. I love that. Um, yeah. But I definitely don't want to like force myself or yeah. rush into anything. Yeah. Uh, thank That's you for so sharing. Nice. Yeah. I completely agree about the foundation of a healthy body and mind yeah. as, a, as a start. 
Um, what are mm. you thinking? I just want to become best friends with my brain, honestly. <laughs> like, I just want to <laughs> get to know it. Like, and um, like you said before, train, train, train your brain. Yeah. Um, that's it. That's like my one only thing. Nothing else, really. Just really get to know my brain and like how it works, how I, how I want it to work. And just really focus on that, like you guys said. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That sounds like a good place to start because yeah. honestly, I feel like a, a lot of definitions have been upended um, this year. And not only that, I feel like it, it was a long time coming in the sense that, uh, you know, I guess we were, uh, we had like one sort of like, you know, path that yeah. everybody was sort of used to. And I keep hearing this mm-hmm. from people as well. Yeah. Uh, for some people, COVID has been a blessing. Like we were talking to, you know, um, a guest last last week and she was saying you know how uh covid has been a blessing for her in her chronic illness because it's actually brought people closer together because of you know zoom and stuff because everybody is now you know in the way that she's been you know for the last 10 years or something like that so of course for some people it's been like that and you know changed trajectories for how they live their life um yeah for like years i mean like, there's no school to go back to this semester. There's not nowhere to go. So, like, all you can do is just, like, sit and, like, change how you think and feel. So, it's so I'm excited true. for that. Yeah. Um, and that being said, like, we, we would love to have you back for, of course, like, you know, more things. And I feel like we didn't even touch on, uh, you know, some of the things that we've talked about, uh, you know, for example, our shared South Asian experiences or not so shared ones. But I feel like this one was very helpful, like you said. Very informative. Yeah. Um, And thank you for sharing your, you know, of course, your progress and stuff. I feel feel inspired. And thank you for doing the work that you do because you're absolutely right. And I will always think of it in a a different way sometimes i feel like uh we kind of like say the same thing and please do not get me wrong i'm not comparing at all but sometimes we feel the same way when we say that oh people you know don't really give enough credit to like you know designers who have thought about maybe a product design a certain way whether it be hardware or software but Mm -hmm. i you've completely opened my eyes to thinking that yeah scientists man like the people who actually bring (laughs) the thing to you after having tested it yeah yeah so that's and I think COVID yeah I mean I think COVID has kind of pushed that especially like with putting Fauci center stage right. and yeah. Like, yeah um and kind of like people are like thinking oh okay the people that you know created this vaccine okay like we need to applaud right. them and applaud the work they're doing and, so yeah um, so I think I think COVID has kind of helped kind of put scientists like in front of people's yeah. brain or faces and kind of put a picture to what a scientist looks like or what yeah. they do yeah no that's yeah that's definitely yeah Completely. i mean i definitely appreciate them more now yeah, that <laughs> yeah. for sure yeah um, big Fauci fan here and uh, yeah listen to every every word that guy says yeah <laughs> so um Uh, But yes, thank you so much, Brie. It was a pleasure talking to you, getting to know a day in the life of you. And um, (laughs) we obviously plan to have you back for like, you know, other things and just get an update on what your life is. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. It was amazing talking to you. And guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Have a wonderful week. And definitely don't ever worry about (laughs) Lokia.